You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, episode 183. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in today, actually kind of damp and chilly, Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, uh, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you today, Michael? Pretty good, David. I I heard yesterday that uh, Texas and Minnesota were the lone holdouts in changing their driver's licenses to meet federal standards and that soon you might need a passport to go from Texas to the rest of the country. And I thought, hey, it's what Texas has wanted all along. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, that's – I don't think that would be that weird actually. Minnesota, you know, the, the civic the civic duty state uh, did switch theirs over. But I, last I heard, Texas is still – it's still holding out, as you would expect. What exactly is jacked up about my driver's license it, that needs it, fixing? The, the feds have some – and understand, I haven't done any actual research. My wife just told me this last night at dinner. <laughs> um, I, I, I believe the feds have some um, st- standard form your driver's license has to be in. It, it, like everything has to be in the same space across driver's licenses, across states. And, okay. and Minnesota and Texas didn't, didn't match oh. up. I mean, they've been reporting for months that Minnesotans might have to use a passport, but I still had a Florida driver's license until yesterday, so. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, I mean, the entire time that I've, you know, lived in Georgia, I just kept driving back to Alabama to renew my driver's license because uh, when when I went to try to get one in Georgia, they told me that I was going to have to take the driver's test over again, and, and I said, bump that. I just, I just had to take the written one. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that alcohol slows your reaction time? What? <laughs> that wasn't a question on the test. I was just drinking while I was taking it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. We gotta. We gotta. We gotta get going. Um, the the other chuckling voice that you hear is the dulcet tones of Danny Anderson, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in. Pennsylvania somewhere. Um, Isn't it in Mount Aloysius? Yeah, we're in Crescent, Pennsylvania, actually. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> which doesn't mean anything else than somewhere in Pennsylvania, I know. So. <laughs> well, are you uh, on Mount Aloysius, Danny? What, what was the question? Are you on Mount Aloysius? Um, no, no. Uh, I don't know what the name of the mountain is. We're on a mountain. Uh, Aloysius is a saint, and so... Uh, we've got, uh, we're on him, I guess. So is he, is he your mountain? Uh, yeah. Is he's, he a my man? Co- he's my co-pilot. We kind of <laughs> rhyme, Danny, cause I'm at St. Bonifacius. I know. <laughs> 
Nice. And I'm at Saint. Wait, no. Saint <laughs> Houston. Saint, Saint Sam Houston. Saint Sam Houston. <laughs> Saint Sam Houston. <laughs> oh man, it's going to be one of those episodes. Yeah. Well, dear listeners, you might uh, you sh- you should know Danny. He's our on again, off again Christian humanist, and now a regular sectarian reviewer. Um, the best podcast on the internet, as I nah. said before we started recording. <laughs> well, I, I I will say that uh, I, I've I've uh, I, I've been uh, li- listening through your your body of work, Danny, and uh, I'm I'm really liking this kind of long form, uh, uh, more. Uh, yeah, I I, I I think you guys are doing some some interesting some interesting stuff. Just call it rambling. This is uh, there's no you don't have to be nice about it. We just we just uh, <laughs> jibber jabber basically. I, so. I still think of it as the Dick Cavett show, <laughs> and, and I'm just hoping I'm just hoping you get whatever your version of Norman Mailer is to come and punch you in the eye. <laughs> I've got a guy on Twitter. I'm trying to poke into this. Actually, uh, I keep uh, responding to ridiculous Facebook uh, or Twitter tweets that he makes uh, to goad him into being my uh, my foil. So. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, before we get into our topic, which is um, one that uh, uh, will uh, is is one that I, I understand uh, thrills you to the the depths of your being, Danny. Um, <laughs> do we have any network news that needs uh, needs touting before we go? Well, there is a uh, recent episode of Sectarian Review on on what Danny calls praise movies. True enough. I believe by the time this drops, there will have been a recent Christian feminist podcast. Uh, we missed a Profiles last week. Uh, try as I might, we just could not schedule our Oscars uh, preview profiles. Mm. But there will be another Profiles the day before this drops, uh, I think with Norman Wurzba from Duke University. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, we got quite a bit going on. And, and we're in the works for a new podcast, but uh, we're not going to announce anything about that until it's for sure. Excellent. Oh, I should say, there's also a new Pietist School Man. They, um, they've they been off for a couple of weeks, but they came back, and now I think they're going to be off for a couple of more weeks. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. You know, what, what, what they... What they, uh, you know, what they lack uh, in regularity, they make up for in, in quality of guests. That's uh, true. He gets, Absolutely. He, he gets some really good people on that show. All of these shows are better than the one you're currently listening to. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Untrue, completely. <laughs> so, our topic today is uh, Lionel Trilling's essay on the teaching of modern literature. And I'm sure that on the Sectarian Review, Danny Lionel Trilling is a man who needs no introduction, but with me, he does. Um, medievalist. So, Danny, who is this man, and why does he deserve our attention? Well, in the 20th century, I mean, Lionel Trilling was as prominent a figure in cultural and literary criticism as there were. I mean, you would think of people like Edmund Wilson and Lionel Trilling in the same breath, um, and, um, and and Jacques Brazun and, and all those folks. And uh, so he was a very prominent um, public intellectual, really, in the in the 20th century. And he was uh, affiliated with uh, the New York intellectuals, people like um, that whole sort of partisan review crowd that was go- uh, that was uh, 
actually the inspiration for my podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but also, uh, I mean, a lot of prominent like New York intellectuals would contribute to this. And, and many of them were Jewish as Trilling was, uh, and Trilling happened to, he was, uh, a Columbia, he did his dissertation at Columbia and was at one of, if not the, one of the first Jews actually admitted to the faculty of Indeed Columbia. the first. And yeah. even, even then they wouldn't let him teach without Jacques Barzun by his side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, he was a bit of a groundbreaker, although he was never one to really kind of strongly, at least publicly, uh, identify or, or make any kind of bones about his Jewishness. I think that he just saw himself more as a critic and, a, and an artist than uh, a, a part of an ethnic group. And so his Jewishness is always, I think, implied more than actually uh, dealt with in, in his work. And so, um, but in terms of his uh, contribution, I mean, the, his most famous collection of essays is The Liberal Imagination, and this is a, uh, a, a collection of essays aimed at doing kind of literary criticism in a way that is supposed to be an internal critique of liberalism. And so uh, he's identifying problems with what he calls the liberal imagination. I'm sure we can get into this more later. Um, and I actually talked about that um, in my, my re most recent podcast a bit as well, um, identifying problems with the liberal imagination. And of course, we're talking oh, like sort of a New Deal form of liberalism at this point, if you're if that's a, a, a devil term for you at this <laughs> at this moment in history. That's probably not exactly the same thing that Trilling was reacting to. Um, and uh, and so his uh, real project is one of being kind of an outsider insider uh, for the life of the mind. And so um, why he deserves our attention, uh, I think this essay the, is, is collected in a volume called Beyond Culture. And kind of the overt purpose of this collection was to sort of uh, continue his project that he began with liberal imagination about being a kind of conscientious voice. And so in this essay, there's several moments where you have him kind of stepping back and thinking about the structures of the institutions within, within which he is writing. And he's uh, um, in that way, I think, a, an interesting model for those of us who are in academia uh, and who are – it's very easy to just sort of get caught up in the mechanizations of our industries and, uh, and not ever think about uh, those mechanizations <laughs> and how they actually operate. And so I think – in recent years, you have seen a bit of a resurgence in people being interested in him. A few years ago, Adam Kirsch, I think, wrote a uh, kind of an intellectual biography called Why Trilling Matters, which I uh, highly recommend. And, and there seems to be a renewed interest in this kind of detached form of, I guess, what you would call liberal humanism as a uh, – uh, form of literary critique instead of uh, – that predates theory in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, in fact, he and, doesn't show up at all in the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism, which I, I just that, – that is so baffling to me. Because, I mean, <laughs> as you say, he's probably the most important literary critic public intellectual of the 20th century. Yeah. Probably I mean, the last important literary critic public intellectual. He's definitely that. Like he was sort of like the kind of – the last moment of that 
of that tradition in the 20th century in America, at least. And, uh, and, and he was, I mean, he was replaced by professional academics um, who saw themselves as professional academics in the publisher parish model, uh, which defines that. And, and he sort of is, I think in some ways, it's probably why he's interesting to people to whom he's interesting uh, right now. So, uh, uh, Michael, <laughs> I'll, I'll pitch it over to you. I, I, I do have a couple things to add. Uh, first of all, I would, I would think, and maybe he is more popular with Christian academics than I imagine him to be, but I would think he would be more popular with them, um, partly because of his orientation, which is so humanist in the sense in which this show is humanist. In fact, I think I mentioned him on the very first episode of this podcast. Um, but but also because Christian universities tend not to exist under that publisher parish model, mm-hmm. um, Christian academics are paradoxically able to publish for wider audiences more easily than secular academics, at least at Research One universities. Mm-hmm. And and so a, a magazine like Books and Culture, uh, which is the the kind of flagship christian cultural review um i i think that owes quite a bit to trilling's conception of public intellectual yeah um a couple more things trilling is considered a liberal when he's writing nowadays he seems very conservative because the culture has shifted so much mm-hmm. and, and i mean you read him and, and uh and you wonder how con- how conservative he saw himself i mean when he famously says at the beginning of the liberal imagination that there is no conservative imagination well, what's the what's the phrase he uses danny a series of nervous gestures yeah. <laughs> that that's not him gloating like like, no. like he he wishes there was a conservative imagination if only to balance out the the liberal imagination which is the point you make uh, on the latest sectarian review is he's worried that the liberal imagination is slipping away um mm-hmm. as the conservative imagination did and and i i think we live in a world in which yes that's happened um that there's no imagination on either side of the aisle at this point um but so so well, there I, is but it's not at the steering wheel right right <laughs> so so uh his his fame another of his famous quotes is between is the only honest place to be and so i wonder if even in the even in his heyday in the 50s he he sees himself as hung between those two camps and and that that ambiguity um and ambivalence they're both very important for this essay in particular um, my favorite trolling story, and I, I learned this from the Louis Menand piece on him in The New Yorker. It must have been almost a decade ago at this point. But during the, the student uprisings in 1967, somebody breaks into his office at Columbia University and spray paints on the wall, F you trilling, you bourgeoisie pig. <laughs> and Menand comments it must have been someone who wasn't paying attention in French class. Yeah, <laughs> but th- that really is that it really is emblematic of what happened to Trilling. That th- this is a man who who was so long associated with the cultural left, and then the culture very abruptly shifts even further left, and all of a sudden he is not liberal enough. He's lost his credentials, and I, I can't help but think that's what kept him out of the Norton anthology. Mm. Well, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's actually emblematic of the entire New York intellectual uh, as a group. Uh, um, th- this is the genesis of, say, Commentary Magazine was as a mouthpiece for these uh, left-leaning or leftist uh, New York intellectuals. And at some point in the 60s, when the new left arises, you see a split within the New York intellectuals as a whole. Um, some of them are seen as sort of retrograde and then kind of retroactively then identified 
identified as conservative, some of them kind of move into the neoconservative movement. And so people like Irving Kristol was a colleague of people like Irving Howe. And, and they, they began with uh, in the same exact uh, kiosk, basically, at City College in New York, uh, talking about socialism. And without really changing any of their ideas, they ended up on the opposite ends of political spectrum, of the political spectrum, largely because of the kind of cultural revolution, really, in the 1960s with the rise of the new left. Um, and, and Trilling, I think, is kind of caught right in the middle of that. Uh, I think he was much more aloof from the fray of the political discourse than someone like Irving Howe, for sure. Um, but uh, was still had the same kind of liberal sentiments, I think. And so that what you're describing with his change in reputation, I think could be said largely to the whole about the whole uh, group that he was a part of. Yeah. And, and they're all strangely cultural, cons- culturally conservative, right? So you think of, there's a very famous essay. We really should do an episode about this sometime. Uh, the Dwight McDonald essay, Mass Cult and Mid Cult. Mm. Uh, McDonald is a is a socialist, right? But that that essay is is a wonderful piece of snobbery. Um, <laughs> that, that is that is equally hard on the the kind of vulgarity of the masses and on the capitalist system that that just feeds them garbage without thinking about what might be nourishing to them. And, and that's a that's a very strange combination of of liberal and conservative, and and one frankly I identify with, um, uh, but but it, it you're right that it doesn't fit in with the post sixty seven new left, or of course with the neoliberal left today, where where I mean the neoliberal left is exactly the opposite. It's 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 economically in many ways quite conservative in the sense that it it kowtows as, to to global capitalism. Um, you know who who's donating to Hillary Clinton's campaigns, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it it seems to me to be uninterested in preserving anything worthwhile from our cultural traditions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I, I can't imagine Trilling and McDonald and the rest of them being particularly gung ho about today's Democratic Party. In his book, I think it's called "The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism." Uh, he states. Like I'll never get the formulation right, but culturally he's a conservative, economically he's a socialist, and in some other field he's a liberal. And so, I mean, there was a sense at a time in which the left could had a bigger imagination <laughs> about what liberalism uh, sort of meant, and, 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 I, and I think that Trilling was a part of that tradition, and it's really largely lost. Yeah, we should, uh, we should start a third party. Uh, that, that, that represents that because right now there's no one for me to vote for <laughs> well I mean the, the, the difficulty is the um, the careless elision of, of all of these different axes into of course there must be one monolithic position on all of them right when you know it's, 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 it's as if you know, someone looked at a soundboard and said, "You know what? Every one of these sliders needs to be all the way up." Yeah, right. <laughs> no, that, I think that's a really good observation, David. And a great analogy. <laughs> you know, and and what the right the right's not you know the right's not any better on that because they look at it and say, "No, no, no, no! It needs to be exactly the opposite," and and neither of them is good for each other. When they only treat the other as the foil. No, no, no. Everything needs to be up. No, no, no. Everything needs to be down. 
Um, and, there's, and there's a sense that the foil is a bad thing, whereas in Trilling's conception, the, the foil is a necessary thing. That's right, um, yeah, because tension is so important to him. Right. Yes. The, uh, he complained about the weightlessness of American culture, meaning there's nothing to oppose oneself to. And I believe another collection of his essays is called The Opposing Self. Right. Think about how radical that statement, between is the only honest place to be, really is. I mean, think about what would happen if a presidential candidate got up on the on the uh, apple crate and said that, and said between is the only honest place to be. He'd, he'd never get elected. No. Or she. Mm-hmm. Or it. <laughs> <laughs> because between. Um, yeah, right, right, right. So... All right, so I'm I, I'm I'm convinced. Um, you know, even though you know I tend to be more rightward in my leanings, um, I could see you know based on the way you guys are framing it that Trilling is a really important guy, even for me where I stand because he, because he wants to be the tension pulling the other way, not the guy on the other side of the wall throwing bricks. He thinks we need each other, which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'll kick this over to you, Michael. Um, he starts his essay by framing, you know, the title is not on modern literature, but on the teaching of modern literature. And even though he's talking about a particular theme of modern literature, he's posing it as a um, within a kind of pedagogical problem um, in which it's not just the student's problem. It's also a professor problem, a problem with approaches to literature, even the nature of how we do academia. So before we kind of dig into the theme, to the extent that you can, um, uh, without, you know, digging into the theme, um, can you sketch out the pedagogy side of the issue? First of all, one of the, uh, one of the truly great lines from this essay is that, uh, pedagogy is a depressing subject to all persons of sensibility. (laughs) (laughs) I have a smiley face written there too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The pedagogical problem is, is one that I think is still live, which is if you believe that literature is there to change your life, which Trilling does not use that language, but I'm pretty sure that's what he thinks literature is there for. Uh, how do you teach it in an academic setting without defanging it? Mm. If the power of literature is the questions it asks, how can you make the students uh, write a term paper in which they answer those, you know, fundamentally unanswerable questions without betraying the discipline to which you've dedicated your life? Mm. And that that seems to me to be as live an option today as it's ever been, like, like or as, as live a question today as it's ever been. Like that that is that is not something that disappeared after 1961. I should mm. note when he says uh, when he says modern literature, he is writing in 61. He's not talking about contemporary literature. He's talking about high modernist literature because the, the people right. he mentions are like uh, Elliot. Conrad and Eliot and and people like that. So he he's really talking about this this turn in the early 20th century inward because modernist literature is marked by this psychological realism you might say which which makes it quite difficult. If something is supposed to be psychologically realistic, how can you dissect that without taking taking it out of the the reader's psyche, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it it would almost be as if someone said, "I'm going to write this long, you know, a thirty-page peer-reviewed article about why I fell in love with my wife." Right. And, <laughs> and, can... and how could you do it without killing that? 
Right. Or, or, or even worse than that, because the, the way you just, the way you just phrased it makes it a voluntary act. But right. what if you asked a student how they fell in love with their significant other, you know, uh-huh. and, and made yeah. them, made them write about it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trilling says that his, his favorite students are the ones who just flat don't get it. <laughs> because it's a more honest uh yeah. right that the, what he hates is the smugness of the of these students who were confronted with he calls it the most personal literature that's ever been written and they treat it as a cadaver to be dissected instead of a person to to uh to be interrogated mm. or to interrogate you because mm. a good book reads you he says mm. yeah yeah, um, if I can add on a couple things, I feel like at the heart of this essay is an institutional critique about academia. And I think Trilling, I mean, this is where his Jewishness is implied, I think. Um, you've got an insider outsider dynamic built in to his career um, as an academic. Um, and when you add to that the fact that he, I think, really wanted to be an artist, um, he does have a novel, a couple, well, there was an unfinished novel that's been subsequently published, but um, canonically, he has a novel, uh, Middle of the Journey, uh, several really wonderful short stories. Um, and uh, uh, I think he saw himself as an academic as somewhat of a, a failure. I think he really, really wanted to participate in the creative life of the mind. And there's something about settling and <laughs> for the role of a critic that, uh, I think made him sad. I think this is a sadness, uh, implied in his work. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think he, that goes back to his insider outsider position. Um, and it also goes back to his, um, I mean, he's heavily influenced by Matthew Arnold. I know we're going to talk about him in a bit. Um, but Arnold's, uh, influence on him comes in the form of this, suspicion of institutional machinery uh, as just becoming an end into itself. And so, for example, in the liberal imagination, um, Trilling is complaining about uh, liberal liberal people being drawn to like realist literature, like social realist literature that simply parrots their already held beliefs about the world. And so the bankers are bad guys and the poor destitute people are good guys and these sorts of things. And and he's saying this is sort of disastrous because what's left if we're not interrogating um, our liberal sentiments is that we just become dependent on policy uh, and the kind of machinery that keeps our sentiments active in society. And that's not where they should really be active. They should be active in the imagination. It's dehumanizing somehow to read Theodore Dreiser. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he specifically talks about Dreiser, yeah. Um, and uh, and I feel like the same kind of uh, critique is being levied at the university here, um, when we're just sort of by rote and by the kind of mechanisms of academic literary criticism, um, we're really undermining the humanity of these texts uh, that are really profoundly personal and human. And I think um, that's those are all sort of contributing to his perspective on the pedagogical question that you're asking here. And it's a lover's betrayal, right? Because nobody goes into teaching English for any reason, I suspect, other than that at some point in their life they read something that that grabbed them at the deepest part of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you, you, you brought up Arnold and, 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 and really the, the role that uh, literature plays um, 
the the arts in general, but literature plays in in, in Arnold's you know view of what's what humans ought to be doing in the world. Um, this becomes kind of like um, a regularly scheduled revival meeting um, <laughs> in 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 the Christian setting, right? <laughs> yes. Right? Where there's this, um, you know, this, you know, the moment of conversion, you go read Augustine and, and you, you know, you, you, you know, Paul's, you know, you know, Paul's experience on, on, you know, on, on the road to persecuting Christians and all, all this kind of thing. And then now we're going to make this part of the regularly scheduled program, um, that it seems kind of comparable. Absolutely. That's a really, really good analogy, actually. Um, so Cool. Well, we need to get into though. We need to get into the theme because it's so integral into why this is such a problem to teach. Um, this is Trilling's essay, but uh, as we've already kind of suggested, Matthew Arnold is also also has an important cameo. Um, both have something to say about literature and the modern, but they don't say the same thing. So, Danny, you're the Christian humanist who's most likely to have portraits of Arnold <laughs> trilling over his mantle. <laughs> so could you walk us through these two visions of what modernity and literature is all about? Sure. And people in Georgia will remember me wearing gigantic uh, sideburns in honor of uh, uh, Matthew Arnold there for a, a couple of years. And I haven't I haven't had the nerve to do that up in Pennsylvania yet, but uh, <laughs> maybe someday. Um um, and yeah, and when at the point in which Arnold kind of re-enters this essay, um, I, and I don't, I don't think you can read any Trilling and not see Arnold's shadow. I, I well, it's his first book, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His his dissertation and his first book was a, a biography, an intellectual biography of, of Matthew Arnold, uh, and he's <laughs> usually thought of as the American version of Matthew Arnold. Um, and so this is uh, a perfectly natural uh, thing to see him mentioned in this essay. He does it over and over and over in his work. Um, but it, he talks about uh, Ar- Arnold's use of the term modernity in literature, um, in which he would apply it. I mean, he would look at ancient Greek te- texts and call it modern. Uh, and he would look at sort of contemporary texts and call them modern if they uh, were kind of uh, – he used, I, I think Trilling calls it – he uses it in an entirely honorific uh, phrase, uh, sense of the term. Modernity means basically enlightenment uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and quality, culture, and, and this, sort of, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, and so I feel like when Arnold is using that term, he's thinking of it as wholly – uh, in the progressive uh, uh, enlightenment sort of model of modern of, of modernity, uh, mm-hmm. it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, this is what makes us awesome humans, right? Is that we're modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, whereas Trilling, like Nate, um, like I'm sorry, Michael said earlier that uh, he's talking about modernist literature largely, and so mm-hmm. uh, the modern for Trilling is something that's in. Inter- and and actually utterly kind of devastating. I think he compares it to a howitzer uh, aimed at culture in, in this essay. Mm-hmm. And so the modern for Trilling is something that's destructive and, and kind of utterly personal and encaptures or encapsulates the uh, the individual's resistance to society, not the kind of honorific mm-hmm. idea that uh, the enlightened society is uh, good. And so. Uh, this is where I think Trilling brings in Fraser and, and the the Golden Bow. Uh, 
when he, he talks about when Fra- Frazier's book kind of exemplifies Arnold's idea of modernity, right? But contained within it is an, this implied uh, Nietzschean kind of resistance to uh, mm-hmm. society as well. And so that's kind of like a transitional text for him. And I, and I know later on um, we'll be talking about background and stuff, and then we'll certainly talk about Frazier more then. But um, uh, I feel like that's kind of uh, the dividing point that distinguishes the way Arnold's using that term and the way Trilling is uh, – the, the kind of text that Trilling is talking about. Okay. Anything you want to add to that, Michael? No, I don't think so. I think Danny covered it pretty well. Da- you, you certainly know Arnold better than I do. I've read parts yeah. of Culture and Anarchy, and that's about it. And, you know, of course, Dover Beach, the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, and uh, th- this is, I mean, this is my first encounter with this essay, my first encounter with Trilling. Um, would you say that the... Um, the kind of critique of cult of society that Trilling's pointing to is something like looking at society and faulting it for failing to live up to the Arnoldian ideal, or is it a critique of the ideal itself, or is it, or is that, or are those two things too jumbled up together for you to really isolate them analytically? <laughs> That's a oh wow that's a complicated question. I, I I mean I feel like when I read Trilling where I see Arnold coming in is the idea of the importance of stepping back. I mean this collection is called Beyond Culture. Um this is okay. originally published in Partisan Review, um ironically enough in 1961 and the original title was actually different. Uh it was called on the modern element in modern literature. And so when it was collected, they changed the title to on the teaching of modern literature. Um, okay. But uh, when, um, so kind of the unifying theme of this collection of essays is very much like the conclusion of Dover beach. When the, right. let's be on the, the cliffs of Dover as the ignorant armies clash by night, we'll be aloof from that. We'll be beyond that in some way. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the conflict becomes an object of contemplation in that way. Uh, and so I think that largely does is consistent with Trilling's um, essay work for sure. I think that he doesn't want to come to easy conclusions. Uh, uh, and in fact, this essay ends, I believe, by saying, I don't really know what to make of this. But I just think we ought to see it for what it is. Uh, and so I think, I think he doesn't really have any kind of solution to the problem that he's, pray, okay. uh, that he's talking about. The problem itself is worthy of contemplation. And, and I feel like uh, I probably drifted from your original question. But yeah. uh, that, I think, uh, does for me describe the goal of Trilling's work is for us to step beyond the fray a bit and actually mm-hmm. think about us as a, as a, as a cohesive whole. Mm. Well, one of the things that I think is lying behind that, that particular question for me is I, 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 th- I think sometimes I, I, I think in terms of, um, modernity as a, as a kind of religion so that the reaction of post-modernity to modernity is, 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 is a kind of losing faith. Right. Mm. Um, but Trilling also seems to be talking about a kind of losing faith mm-hmm. and it, it reminds me of, you know, those who 
reject the institutional church because it fails to live up to the ideals that it's supposed to represent. Mm. Is, yeah, it, is, it, you know, is it more like that or is it more like you know, Hitchens' religion is toxic? <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think that's the case at all. And in fact, when okay. you talk about modernity as a kind of religion, that's a, a perfectly Arnoldian sentiment. I mean, I think he mm-hmm. saw um, culture, what he would call culture as a replace. I mean, when the, when the sea of faith is, uh, withdrawing, um, what he hopes will happen is that the kind of life of the mind, the, the liberal humanist idea of culture will serve as a kind of replacement for that, um, social, the social work, at least of that, uh, of that institution of, of organized religion. And so, um, and so I don't believe that there's like a, a revolutionary, intent here. I don't believe Trilling is someone who wants to kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater, uh, as it were. Uh, I I have a hard time seeing him. I I think he would, in in this way, maybe he's like conservative in a a Burkean sense in that um, he values the the role of tradition. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, am I wrong about that, Michael? No, no. And that's that's what I was getting at in calling him a cultural conservative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you already brought up um, uh, Frazier, uh, Golden Bow, um, Danny, mm-hmm. and I'll pitch this at you, Michael. Um, on page two thirty one, which this was a this was an interesting move to me. Um, Trilling turns to one of the kind of the major ways that he had you know, that he had come up with for engaging students with modern literature, which was actually to make them read earlier stuff, like late Victorian stuff, um, as what he calls background. So, um, if you could kind of give us a sketch of what these, what are these earlier works and what kind of background are they providing? And what is his point in giving us background? Is this, is this just kind of history of ideas stuff or is he doing, is he doing something else with it? Well, you mentioned uh, the Golden Bough, um, yeah. which I, I have not read, but from my understanding, in in making this kind of universal myth, it destabilizes mm-hmm. organized religion by making it into just another kind of mythology. Yeah, I've got two copies on my shelf. <laughs> What's interesting about Trilling's uh, treatment of that is it says when when most students read this, they have a sense that Fraser has gone too far. Mm. That that um, this is not an entirely legitimate move. Um, so that that should uh, discount the notion that Trilling is assigning these things uncritically. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wants to teach two Nietzsche books, uh, The Birth of Tragedy, on the one hand, um, and he says that Walter Kaufman is right, that The Birth of Tragedy is largely misunderstood, that it's a balancing act between the Dionysian and the Apollonian. Uh, and yet, uh, it's necessary to read it as just the birth of the Dionysian when you first read it, and so it makes a good uh, introduction to modern literature. Hmm. Um, also, the genealogy of morals, which, uh, as he puts it, m- uh, moves humanity from the ethical sphere to the aesthetic sphere. Um, that that ethics no longer matter. What matters is the art one makes with one's life. I suspect that opens us up for the boundary-breaking qualities of modernist literature. Um, although I don't know how genuinely influential genealogy of morals is on most of those modernist writers. Uh, the Freud he suggests reading is uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, which is actually a very late Freud. Uh, I, I believe that book's from 1920. 
Um, okay. And, and in some ways, as he points out, it is a rewriting of genealogy of morals with a different moral, um, because ultimately Freud Freud recognizes the same unsettling power that that Nietzsche talks about in genealogy of morals, and yet he recommends a fairly bourgeois lifestyle, bourgeoisie lifestyle, I suppose. Uh, but uh, so so I, I think he's assigning those two things as counterpoints, and then then he talks about a couple of novels he assigns. Right, he he teaches Heart of Darkness, um, and he likes the ambiguity in Heart of Darkness, and he teacher he teaches Thomas Mann's Death in Venice. Um, which is, uh, he says, I wanted this story not so much for its account of an extravagantly Apollonian personality surrendering <laughs> to forces that in his Apollonian character he thought shameful, but rather for Aschenbach's fevered dreams of the erotic past, and in particular that dream of the goat orgy, which Mann, being the kind of writer he is, having the kind of relation to Nietzsche he had, might well have written to serve as an illustration of what the birth of tragedy means by religious frenzy. Uh, the more so, the man with a long sentence. The more so, of course, because Mann chooses that particular orgiastic ritual, the killing and eating of the goat, from which tragedy is traditionally said to have been derived. Mm. This is fascinating because it connects it connects modern literature not just to older forms of literature, but to the very oldest forms of literature. Right? We're mm. moving all the way back to like the fourth century before Christ here, and showing that there is some sort of line between that and between what somebody like Eliot or Thomas Mann is doing in the 1920s. And mm-hmm. so, again, he's, he's giving a sort of historical background, a sort of history of ideas thing. You can, you can, you can hear echoes of Jacques Barzun in what he's saying here. Barzun is, is one of the 20th century's great historians of ideas. And, and of course they taught, um, together for many years. Um, so, so he's he's making these connections and preparing the students to read read the the, the literature in a way that will allow it to be less difficult for them because he talks about the difficulty of modern literature and how how hard it is to just jump in um, mm-hmm. even even at the time it was written and so the the background gives them some routes in. Mm-hmm. Do I get that wrong, Danny? No, I think that's right. And, and in addition to that, though, I think that in the narrative of this essay, at least it's also a reaction to a, the first time, the first few times he taught this class, he talks about taking just the sort of new critical approach and just kind of doing strictly formal analysis with them and trying to depersonalize it. That was his initial, um, approach to uh, teaching these kinds of works, which for him are very personal. And he wanted to kind of keep this divide between, uh, his private self and his self as a teacher. Uh, and, and so as a way to get at that, he sort of withdrew and, and became this very strict formalist. Um, and then when that wasn't working, basically, is when he did this. And so I do feel like the the kind of contradictions and the ambiguities that these uh, works, that these background works are providing um, are a way to personalize this for students uh, mm, to, mm-hmm. to get them to sort of grapple with the the hard ideas. And it's not just that this literature is formally hard, like, like the wasteland is difficult to read, um, but the ideas behind them are hard. Uh, and, and if you read Kafka, for example, um, he talks about the castle, I believe, in this uh, essay. But um, I, I, as everyone knows, teach Kafka, you know, quite a bit in order to get my students to um, read a point of view that 
uh, actually undermines the whole purpose of being in college. <laughs> and so when, <laughs> when you read Kafka, you have a real suspicion of, of uh, the value of education, and, we, and, and you don't see it as a liberating um, uh, mechanism, but one that is actually another form of prison that you're being entered into by the, the, the learning of, of institutional education. And so uh, uh, these are difficult philosophical ideas, and, and I feel like this background information is seems to be uh, in the narrative of this uh, essay, at least, um, a way to bring the personal uh, to, make, to to personalize it for his students. Well, and another thing that's interesting about it is the uh, the works he mentions. Again, I haven't read Fraser, so I don't know, but um, Nietzsche and Freud both read very easily. Right, like, like again, the ideas are pretty heavy there, but the the writing is probably less difficult than a lot of modernist literary works. Mm-hmm. It may be the first time in history that the literature is harder to read than the philosophy. Maybe the only time <laughs> in history. Um, so, so it makes sense. You're kind of easing them into the ideas by giving them the ideas straight mm-hmm. before they're before they're encoded in the literature. Mm. Well. I, I I would. It, it seems to me that there's there's another kind of work that they're doing. Um, I've read Fraser. Um, it's very dry in its presentation. Um, he is uh, he's not he's not throwing bombs, right? Um, but Fraser is a punch in the gut uh, to. A traditionally minded, especially a traditionally uh, a traditional Christian, who is exposed to this this approach to anthropology of a religion for the first time, and um, uh, essentially what he's what he what he what he's doing is presenting what he sees as a kind of um, anthropological key to the development of pretty much all religions, including yours, Christian. Um, which is uh, agricultural and fertility cults, right? Well, it's very Victorian in that way, right? I mean, it's yes. like it's like on the origin of species. On the origin of species is a pretty calm book, right? right. But and this is the sea of faith retreating, right? Yes, it's 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 the, it's the sea of it's the sea of faith retreating. But by the time Trilling's students are coming along, the the wound in the side of of the culture that things like Fraser's book and, and Nietzsche and Freud wrought had healed over, you know, and going back to these books, um, I think maybe, maybe puts the students back in the, uh, back in the moment when, um, when this was, when this was trauma, not just, oh yeah, we know that. <laughs> well, and that's consistent with Trilling's liberal imagination, right? Uh, I mean, I feel like, if it's healed over, then it has become settled and uninterrogated. Un- uh, and, and I think the purpose of reintroducing that trauma, if, as you said, uh, is to kind of give us a chance to actually uh, think about those mechanisms instead of just uh, assume them, mm. which is one of the purposes of the modern literature that he's, he's talking about. Yeah. Well, I think we've actually kind of transitioned without transition um, into – into my next question, Danny, which is, um, how is it that Tilling or is 
or sorry, not tilling, trilling, left the R out. Um, how is it that trilling is, is how is he proposing to address the pedagogical problem that he raises um, at, at the beginning? And it, and it looks as if um, in talking about how this background material is supposed to work, we're kind of getting at um, his, his way of addressing that problem. Um, you know, I'm, I'm too lazy to formulate my own summary of what he says. So I'm going to let you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you're not the laziest person I know. Let me just say that. So, um, uh, so, um, you're definitely not lazy. Um, well, let me, I I guess I'll just kind of set her on what I've already kind of maybe hinted at about this essay. I feel like instead of, I mean, I think to propose a solution is to work against Trilling's own cultural philosophy. I, I think that the contemplation of the problem is the solution uh, in, in Trilling, and, and and because solutions become rote, and that's you know if there is an answer, then that answer will kind of disintegrate eventually and, and become a kind of prison. And so, um, for me, I feel like um, his contemplation or the, of this, uh, whatever, this problem that he's posing here is a, um, the problem of teaching modern literature is the problem of universities in modern culture. Uh, at one point he says, um, and I, I'm using a different version, so it's not, I don't know the page number, but, uh, leaving aside the personal considerations or taking them merely as an indication of something wrong with the situation, can we not say that when modern literature is brought into the classroom, the subject being taught is betrayed by the pedagogy of the subject? We have to ask ourselves whether in our duty or whether in our day too much does not come within the purview of the academy. Uh, and, and I feel like he's questioning the the way that the world, the modern world, is mechanizing our minds, uh, and, and the university is participating in this in some ways. Uh, and, and so here he finds a body of work that is actually aimed at not letting that happen. And what happens to us? Uh, what's the eth- what are the ethics of actually of of bringing that into the university, uh, uh, w- the thing that it's actually kind of uh, arguing against. To me, I, I, it's like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm from Cleveland. Uh, and and <laughs> it's like an, it's an utterly uh, asinine concept to take this form of art that is, by definition, counter-institutional <laughs> and create an institution to honor it, right? Uh, and so, and I feel like that's kind of what he's talking about here. This is counter-institutional literature uh, that is brought, when brought into the university, we risk it, its its ethical function, um, which is to kind of um, save something of the individual self from the institutions of mon- modernity. Uh, but, um, but the problem is, and he doesn't say this, but I, I read it in the background of what he's saying. Because of the difficulty of modern literature and because it's 40 years past at this point, the only way most people are ever going to read read Eliot, for example, is if they're assigned it in a classroom. Right. Mm. And, and he says that there's no good reason to not do this at the beginning of the essay. He talks about all the, 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 the good reasons to do it and he understands it and yet he maintains this, uh, this ambivalence, this kind of uh, conflict within himself about doing it. Um, and, and so, yeah, this is, I mean, I, an utterly trilling move, though, isn't it? <laughs> is to um, 
take what is a good thing and find problems within it. And then their contemplation of that problem hopefully makes the good thing better. I don't know how he was as a teacher. I would love to do some research into his effectiveness as a teacher. I was going to ask you that. The only thing I know is that the honors seminar at, at, at Columbia was him and Barzun and the students would like just sit there and listen to the two of them talk about literature, which on one hand seems egomaniacal, but man, would I love to be in that, in that room <laughs> while those two went at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cynthia Ozick, uh, the great uh, novelist, actually, or short story writer as well. Um, she was one of his students actually. And, and she's written an essay. It's called, uh, I think, Lionel Trilling and the Buried Life, some combination of those terms, uh, about what I mentioned before, his kind of uh, feeling that he wanted to be an artist but um, ended up being a teacher instead. And uh, But she talked about how intimidating he was as a uh, – to get into his graduate class, you had to basically interview with him. Uh, and, and she talks about how she was enthralled with new criticism as everyone was and, and he kind of – kind of disparagingly looks at her and says, you don't honestly believe that literature has nothing to do with psychology or history or uh, blah, 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 do you? And so he was very kind of stern uh, in that way. Um, And I would really love to know how he was as a teacher. I believe he was also Allen Ginsberg's um, teacher. Um, And so uh, it would be fascinating. He was quite important to the beat poets. A lot of them them took him. And, and, you know, to some extent, the beat movement is a rebellion against Trilling and what he stands for. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There are some, I have read some essays about that relationship between him and Ginsburg. Um, but yeah, so, uh, to the original question, um, I, I don't believe that he proposes to solve the problem. I think mm. his, his solution is to acknowledge the problem and think about these contradictions and think about these ambiguities, um, mm. which gives us the occasion to be humans out beyond the culture that we're actually in. Um, yeah. and so, yeah. So, so it's more like, don't make the problem go away, but feel the problem harder. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. I, I that's a, actually an excellent way to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, uh, what do you think? I don't know that I have anything to add beyond what I've already said. That, that I mean, you're right about this tension between the literature and the university, and that in, in some ways, the, the university is a block to people, to, to people genuinely encountering the literature. And, and when you, when he talks about his students' reactions, the one that seems to really grate on him most is the kind of canned. I know this will please my professor in the liberal environment that I'm in, so I will say this thing. Um, and so he's very mm-hmm. much like resists that, and and and, and that really bothers him. And, well, what the hilarious line about the abyss? Where's that? At? Uh, uh, the, they've, they've looked into yeah. the abyss, and the the abyss presents itself and says, "Let me see if I can find it." I interesting, am I not? Interesting, <laughs> am I not? And exciting, <laughs> consider how deep I am and what dread beasts lie at my bottom. Have it well in mind that a knowledge of me contributes materially to your being whole or well-rounded men. Uh, and, and that's like I put a little smiley face to that. People, we don't think of trilling as being funny, but there are some really like hilarious zingers in here. Oh, that. I think of him as being funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, it's it's true, right? I mean, the, the the students the students who are least interesting to me are the students who parrot back my ideas, um, especially. I, you know, I, I am the only full-time English professor at my institution, 
which, which means I really worry they get too much of me, you know, and, mm. and that what they're really learning is to think the way I do, which is not what I want. That's why I'm so surprised to hear that Trilling, you had to apply to get into his classes like that, and he he pushed back if you were a new critic, because I, I like it when the students uh, pick up a critical viewpoint that's abhorrent to me. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I do, I and mean, at one point he, he resists the idea of teach students, not subjects. He talks about this as a kind of truism. Um, and he said, uh, as for the students, I have never given assent to the modern saw about teaching students, not subjects. I've always thought it right to teach subject, believing that if one gives his first loyalty to the subject, the student is best instructed. So there is like a deep and impersonal approach to teaching that he seems to want to maintain and finds it difficult to do so when teaching this kind of literature, which for him is utterly personal. Yeah, well, he's a deeply private man. Man. Yeah, I mean the the Louis Menand article from the New Yorker really makes that clear. Yeah, yeah, that that's one. I put a little grumpy face next to that statement because I I, I, I can't really assent to that. I have to I have to tell a, a, a self-aggrandizing story here. I I was uh, I'm I'm sometimes involved in scholarship decisions, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is uh, if the student mentions a book, to tell the student that I hate that book, and, and to see if they backpedal. Because if, if they backpedal, I'm not interested in them, you know, because they won't stand up to me. And it's 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 mm. no fun to me to be in a classroom where the students agree with me because they're afraid of me. Yeah. Let them be afraid of me, but fight back, man. That's what I like. <laughs> I, maybe maybe that's maybe that's the kind of thing that he's getting at. I mean, I, I could see – I mean, if over the years what he'd mainly experienced as a thorn in his side – was the students who simply mouth back what they know what, or what they believe he wants to hear. Maybe that's why he's trying to weed them out, trying yeah. to weed out the ones who are just going to say what they, you know, yeah. what he yeah, says. It's, it's true. I, I assumed that he was weeding out people who disagreed with him because of the story about Ozick, but Ozick yeah. got in, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And she loves him, right? And, and you can totally see her, his influence on her. Um, and, and one other thing I'd like to say about this is – if you've not read any of his fiction, it's worth doing. His short stories in particular are really interesting. There's one of the, his most famous work, really, and it's used to be really heavily anthologized. I, I assume you can still find it. It's called Of This Time, Of That Place. Um, have you read this, Michael? I, I have not read any of his fiction. Um, and it's, uh, a, a, it's a college story uh, about a teacher who teaches modern poetry, and he's a modern poet himself, uh, which is interesting, which gets him into some trouble with some uncomfortable disagreements with some administrators at his college who think that modern literature is, is gibberish. And, and, and so you see a bit of the uh, liberal imagination arguments going on in there. But he's confronted basically with two students. One is this kind of sycophant, uh, I think his name is Blackburn, who just kind of sucks up all day and, and he's, <laughs> he realizes he's going to be successful and all this sort of thing. And, and, and uh, Hal, the professor's name in that story, utterly hates this kid. Um, and then he has this other student who's basically insane. Um, and I think if we were reading this today, we would probably put him on the autism spectrum based on um, – uh, the way he's described in the story. And apparently these are both based on real students. Um, and uh, the insane student is just who can't write, write coherently. Everything he writes is just madness. Um, but the, the professor is so much more uh, invested in this kid because of that, like, because there is this little piece of madness in this otherwise uh, mundane um, con uh, conventional 
institutional setting. Um, and he's his the moral dilemma is, do I need to tell someone that this guy needs to be institutionalized? Uh, and, 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 and that's the moral dilemma. It's a great, great story. And I highly recommend it. And really, if you want to kind of see Trilling's literary critical ideas worked out, um, reading his short stories, you can see them like uh, him working out those same ideas in fiction. Um, and and he didn't write much, but um, what he wrote, I think, is really worth reading and interesting. Cool. Well, I'm going to, you know, like Trilling says, make it personal. Um, <laughs> there are definitely some things I identify with this article, especially as someone who teaches literature. But there are some that I don't identify with on a really fundamental level. Um, you talked earlier about Arnold's sea of faith that retreated, but um, but mine didn't. <laughs> and there are other points on which I've I've stubbornly refused to modernize in the sense that um, in the sense that you know Trilling's modernity did. So I'm not quite disenchanted with modernism in the way that Trilling talks about in modern literature. So what do I do with this essay? What do I do with the modern literature? I mean, can you transpose this into a key that I can sing? <laughs> well, I suspect you disagree with him about uh, about an important point, which is that modern literature is personal in a way that previous cultures literature is not because my guess is you That's find you find medieval literature to ask quite personal questions. It just asks not the same types of personal questions, right? Yeah. So the central dilemma of the essay probably holds true whether you teach modern or pre-modern. I don't like that term very much, but modern or otherwise mm -hmm. uh, literatures. And in that case, I would imagine you have quite a bit to feel reading this essay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, yeah go ahead, Danny. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, you, you, you didn't. Go ahead. Okay. I, I guess, David, I, I have to take exception to the premise of your question. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, uh, I, I feel like with Arnold particularly, uh, whether his personal faith had retreated or not isn't the question. I think what he was lamenting is the social like uh hold that uh okay. these, in, these religious institutions had on the culture at large and with the withdrawal of that um it was being replaced i mean what bound society together then were just sort of market forces and the in the love of business and money uh and, and what he was hoping culture would do would be to uh replace uh religion, uh, basically, and it would become its own kind of religion that would give people a way to step outside of the mechanisms of modern life. Um, and, and I think that in, in addition to that, I think that Trilling isn't disenchanted with modernism. I think he's enchanted with modernism because of its ability to do just that, to pull people out of the, the, corporate and into the personal. Uh, and what he's disenchanted with is the teaching of it, is the, uh, is the corporatization, the recorporatization of, of modern literature and they kind of making it not subversive, but mainstream and therefore denying it its like ethical impact. Uh, that's kind of how I, that, that's consistent with the way I understand Trilling at least in, in this yeah. essay particularly. Um, well, I think what I was looking at is, one of the things that he that he focuses on so much as as uh, modern literature as a kind of 
primal scream of the individual in the face of all that um, the modern society is attempting to foist on them. Right. Right. And that particular reaction is something that, you know, I have my own reactions to modern, to modern society, but there's seldom the kinds of things that modern literature puts forth, if that makes sense. And, yes. But, and, and, but for, but for Trilling, that particular reaction is something that he seems to, that it's something that he feels so personally that it, that it's offensive when students can talk about it in this kind of dry clinical way when he's like, yeah. that's my guts that are being wrenched. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally true. And also, I, I think he also understands because he's interested in social cohesion, right? And, mm -hmm. and he speak, he writes in we all the time. In fact, I think in the introduction to uh, uh, this volume, Beyond Culture, that's how it begins. From time to time, the essays I have published are reproached for making use of the pronoun we in a way that is said <laughs> to be imprecise. And so, I mean, I think he, he is very interested in, in social cohesion and um, what he's another danger with modern literature is because when you mainstream subversiveness, what you mm. risk is losing that social cohesion. I, I always think of animal house. Um, the, the, uh, I always <laughs> think of that no matter what really, but uh, uh, in, uh, in context of this conversation, uh, this is a, a terrific movie as a kind of subversive outsider um, view on uh, privilege and, and fake propriety and in institutional cult and uh, educational institutional culture. Um, the problem is when that becomes mainstream, you end up with frat culture that becomes the mainstream culture, right? And, and it loses that sort of ethical function by being this kind of marginal critique of, of something that could be then helpful. But when it becomes the mainstream, it becomes destructive. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's another facet of his discomfort with teaching uh, this kind of literature in a place like Columbia. Well, and that's, that's also what happened to the new left. Absolutely. Mm. Well, it's the, it's the Dionysus Apollo um, polls. Which exactly. If you just completely ditch the Apollo pole, you can't build a culture on Dionysus because he parties half the time, and the other half he's goading his women into tearing you into pieces. Right. <laughs> I mean, <just> exactly. <laughs> and and this is also, um, I mean, the socialist uh, roots of Trilling's thought, and married with Matthew Arnold, both of those. Uh, philosophies have a dialectic built into them, right? And mm. and he is very much about the value of that dialectic, those those uh, self-contained contradictions um, that should not be resolved. And I think that um, what you're describing there uh, is also um, something that's at risk when you mainstream something subversive. Which is his departure from Marxism, right? Because Marxism resolves the resolves the dialectic. Right. Even if even if there's a new dialectic after that, and that sense exactly. he seems closer to Kierkegaard, to me. Although I, he he takes shots at the existentialists throughout his career. I mean, he he certainly was not an existentialist, but yeah. I think I think there is occasionally that tenor to his thought. Yeah. Well, I want to end by uh, taking it back to where the uh, where the essay started, though um, not Trilling's classroom, your classrooms. Um, both of you have have 
in my hearing uh, referenced uh, trilling and and this this essay as an influence on you. So how important is this essay and its ideas in your teaching, and how do you put those into action, Danny? I uh, th- I've I think utterly internalized trilling in ways that it's not even conscious anymore. And, and so I, uh, it's been a while since I've actually read this. And when I was reviewing this last night, I was like, Oh yeah, that's, I do that all the time. I must've gotten the idea from here. And, and, um, and, and so for me, I mean, I just, I, I always carry with me, an anxiety. I mean, I'm a very anxious person. Uh, not to be too personal uh, on, on the podcast, but you know, I, I got my meds and stuff to kind of keep this under control. But uh, I, I do kind of see the problem with utterly joining something uh, without con- contemplating its its other end. And I even found myself. I'm, I'm working up a little kind of a, a series of mini episodes for a sectarian review. Michael suggested I call them sectarian seconds, and I think I might do that. Um, and so uh, I, I recently just wrote one. Um, I teach this essay or this, I'm sorry, short story called A Summer's Reading by Bernard Malamud, which is this very kind of beautiful idea about education as um, growth and, and reading as some form of um, – um, moral development and, and, and individual freedom. Um, and it's a really beautiful little short story that you should read. And I immediately follow that with Kafka's report to an academy, which is about this ape who learns to speak uh, in human language and utterly refuses to call it freedom and, in fact, characterizes it as a kind of ultimate prison, like like the education and the learning of human uh, tongue uh, uh, is a um, – um, a, a kind of prison that is totalizing. And so, and I, I contemplate in this little thing I wrote, um, like, why do I do that to my students? <laughs> like, why, 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 I don't understand why I have to, to like bring both of those ideas. Why can't I just be celebratory about it? And I feel like it's because I've internalized too much of trilling maybe. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm suspicious of just doing my job without thinking about, um, an unnecessary exertion of power that uh, I, I may be having on people. And, and I think it's an ethical thing to do to acknowledge the, 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 you know, the dark sides of, of even why we're in college. So uh, yeah, I think that in an unspoken way, I can't not see trilling uh, in anything I do. I, I agree with that. I, I, I don't know that I use methods from this essay, but, the essay certainly lurks in the background of my discomfort with writing test questions and grading essays, uh, and and my approach in the classroom, which is which is to try to foster this existential encounter between student and text. Mm-hmm. I did have a question for you, Danny, and maybe for you too, David. I don't I don't know how much you'll be able to answer this, but. The essay is very much about teaching modern literature, obviously, and I wonder if if you find that what he says about the personality of modern literature is also true of postmodern literature, which seems to me often to be much less personal in the sorts of questions it asks, and and, and actually kind of clever in the way that he talks about the student looking into the abyss being clever. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I So when I do teach postmodern literature um, – 
I, I always have it in the context of its relationship to modernism. And so uh, to me, this is one thing comes with the other. And I, and I do find it to be destructive, though. I, I think of I, I think it carries with it the same kind of tension and the same kind of problems that modern literature carries with it, that, that modern literature carries. Um, I think that when um, you think of I think I mentioned this in my last podcast, uh, David Foster Wallace's critique of postmodernism from within postmodernism. Um, it's about the destructive um, nature of irony. And when a culture just becomes utterly ironic, there's something very kind of destructive and sad about this. Right. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that that's not – I mean it's a different form uh, than the, the personal angst of modernity. But when unacknowledged, I think that it's just as insidious uh, without at least kind of being aware of the, the pitfalls of just being ironic all the time. When you think of like Terry Eagleton's critique of postmodernism as essentially an elevated and fancied up form of consumerism. Yeah. And, 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 and so I wonder how much of postmodern fiction is even asking the quote-unquote right questions some of it certainly does i mean wallace is a great example of a i mean he's very clearly postmodernist who still has this this person personal quality at the very bottom of it i think Mm -hmm. much of john barth's work is the same way but you get to somebody like pinchon and it's very difficult for me to discover a beating heart at the center of pinchon it just seems (sighs) it seems archness all the way through or, or yeah. even even somebody we talked about Robert Coover last week for the baseball episode, the 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 Universal Baseball Association is a novel I think with a beating heart, but nothing else I've read from Coover suggests anything other than formal experimentation and archness. Yeah, and I've read quite a bit. So so I I don't teach a lot of postmodern literature, for, perhaps for that reason. Um, it, I, I don't really connect with a lot of it because of because of its what I what I read is its coldness. But it may just be that I'm not reading it right. Yeah, I mean, I do love Pynchon, and um, I, and I, I, uh, I when I teach like Philip K. Dick, I mean, there's obviously big philosophical questions at the heart of that, and I, and I think you can find those same questions in Pynchon and and kind of see through his playfulness. So mm. I'll have to but, try again. It's been a while since I read Pynchon. Yeah. But, I mean, it might be possible to take David Foster Wallace as a kind of um, uh, prophet of the po- uh, of the postmodern who can help you see something inside that literature that's screaming for someone to come and help it feel because it's forgotten hell. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that, that's true. I think that's a really great point. And in that way, I mean, it's a very similar project to Trilling, just sort of in a different uh, historical mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. I, mean, it, it, I, I, can, I, I can see it in my students sometimes. You know, uh, well, most of what I teach is not modern or postmodern. It's pre-modern. And being able to get through the shell of, oh, we know this stuff, or the things that we fixate on is the ways in which this text differs from our current culture in ways that I disapprove of or, you know, this is just weird and therefore funny, you know, being able to kind of try to set that stuff aside so that, you know, at some point what we're reading stabs them where they bleed. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Is it it can be, it can be very, very tough. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and when it and when it works, I feel like I've won. <laughs> What's interesting is it's in again it's in some ways easier to teach postmodern philosophy if if what you're going for is the reaction because mm-hmm. most of the students have a very visceral rea- visceral reaction to Roland Barthes or, or Jacques Derrida. Jack Derrida, as Nathan would call him, who is here, <laughs> um, and and that's interesting to me because in some ways the the literary criticism that results from those attitudes again seems so clinical to me. I mean, post structuralist criticism to me is not that far off from new critical criticism. No, you're right. Um, it, it's. Yeah, it's utterly obsessed with the minutia of, of language, right? And so absolutely, I think that it, it formally looks like, uh, you know, Cleanth Brooks or something like that, yeah. Right, although even Cleanth Brooks, I think, has more of a heart than a lot of these post-structuralist critics. I mean, that is a, that is a development. Post-structuralism is not mm-hmm. that popular anymore, and thank God for it. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that we want to say in our um, in our salute to Trilling and in this uh, this particular episode, or have we? Danny, have you ever read <laughs> Diana Trilling? I have not. Um, I just I just a, a little bit, but not not deeply, not not much. We should we should point out Trilling's wife was uh, also a literary critic of some note. Yeah, hmm. cool. Yeah. And and one thing to keep in mind. Is I mean he's writing in a different time when the reading and appreciation of literature occupied a much bigger part of the public imagination than it does now, and, and so he's talking about these students who are excited to read. You know they're demanding this kind of. Th- I mean I just I mean I, I can only wish <laughs> I can only wish I lived in an environment like that where they're demanding for classes to be developed. You oh know, man, I'm sure I'm sure my students are just days away from demanding I teach a, cre- a class on the Amish romance novel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, this is a, uh, uh, that, uh, I was a bit of sadness here too. And, and that, you know, this is sort of reading into a lost time that even with its problems, uh, has a bit of romanticism for me. So, well, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our trip through Lionel Trilling on the teaching of modern literature. I know that I enjoyed reading it and enjoyed talking about it with you gentlemen. Uh, what have we got going on next week? Do you know, Michael? Yeah, I do. We'll be doing an episode on the uh, another one of our periodic biblical episodes. This one on Joseph, Joseph oh. from the Old Testament, not Joseph from the oh. New Testament. Okay. Well, I mean, he's cool too. Well, we have much more information about that Joseph than the than the younger one. <laughs> he's cool too. <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> He had an amazing Technicolor dream coat. That's true. I had that one queued up, and you hit it first. Oh, I'm sorry. He's our guest, David. Yeah. that's that's true. That's true. I gotta be gotta be kind. Thank you for coming on, Dan. Oh, I thanks so much for having this episode. First of all, and uh, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to take part of it. This is uh, this was that was such a delight. So I appreciate it very much. Eventually, guys... I'm, we'll do this mass cult mid cult episode and have you back on, Danny. All right, it sounds good. Super fun. Well, dear listeners, if you'd like to make comments or uh, ask questions about this particular episode, you can send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org, when when those post as well. Uh, I would imagine that uh, Danny on his sectarian review site would also be ready, willing, and able to field questions about trilling should you bring those to the table. Yep. 
you can also uh, post on our Facebook sites. I believe we've got Facebook sites for both Christian Humanists uh, podcast and the Sectarian Review. Mm-hmm. And uh, give us good reviews on iTunes. Uh, we are on iTunes U, and that's where a lot of people find us. And giving us good reviews helps more people find us. And, you know, that just improves the world, right? <laughs> so... As we head into next week, I wish you all a grand one on behalf of Michael Farmer and Danny Anderson. Uh, The Christian Humanist podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our audio editor is Amberly Copeland. I'm David Grubbs, leaving you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.